0: Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. This morning's show will be broadcast on Easter. So for those who will be observing Easter, I wish you a happy Easter. And for those who are celebrating Passover, this will be the seventh day of Passover. And this morning, we are going to be speaking about the Torah portion that's read on the seventh day of Passover. Some of you will know that the Torah readings for holidays are unique. They don't necessarily follow the same order that would happen on a year when the holiday, in this case Passover, uh, doesn't fall on the weekend. So the first day of Passover, we would be reading from Exodus 12 in the sanctuary, which speaks about the first Passover and the Passover offering. The second day of Passover, one would read about Leviticus 22 through 23, which lists the Moadim, the appointed times on the Jewish calendar, and introduces the concept of the Omer, the 49-day countdown between the second day of Passover and the festival of Shavuot. And On the seventh day, as I've indicated, we will be reading about the Shiratayam, the Song of the Sea, uh, which follows the, the crossing of the Red Sea. With me this morning to speak about Shiratayam, which is found in Exodus 15, Is Rabbi Mark Levin, who uh, is the founding rabbi of Beth Torah congregation uh, outside of Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, Rabbi Levin has served congregational rabbis, uh, served as a congregational rabbi for nearly 45 years. He has a Doctorate of Hebrew Letters from Hebrew Union College, Jewish, Jewish Institute of Religion, and a Doctor of Divinity from the same institution. He is a well known scholar and teacher of Torah, and it's a great joy to welcome back to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts Rabbi Mark Levin. Good morning.
1: Good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's a pleasure. And I know that you purposely wanted to speak about Shiratayam, because uh, as a teacher of Torah, you have been uh, offering uh, a Zoom Torah class uh, for the year of this pandemic. And so let's begin with Exodus 15. And let me just... Uh, Read the opening verses so that our listeners can focus on what we say. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song, which is where we get the word sang shiratayam. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And so, Rabbi, where shall we begin our analysis of this great poem? This is just one of the two great Torah poems.
1: Uh, The grammar even is different, which shows its antiquity. Uh, It comes pretty much in the middle of the book of Exodus. Not exactly the middle, but it comes um, thematically in the middle because the book of Exodus is, of course, a story of the formation of the Jewish people as a people. Book of Genesis being the founding families and then the exodus experience known as the root experience of the Jewish people. So in the first 14 chapters, uh, we have the story of uh, the arrival and the enslavement of the uh, Hebrews and the the family of of Moses, uh, the 10 plagues and the exodus itself. And this, uh, this poem which is uh, thematically right there in the center as the first part of the poem up through verse 12 talks about uh, where they've come from in in terms of this experience of the exodus. And the second half of the poem, or second part of the poem, I suppose better put, talks about where they're headed. So it's a nice transition from the enslavement and the exodus to the journey And the enthronement of God, chapters 25 through 40, with the exceptions of 31 through 34, uh, we'll talk about building a sanctuary, and this poem ends with the building of sanctuary. So we go from enslavement, freedom, to the ultimate purpose of the Torah, which is arrival in the land and enthronement of God uh, in the sanctuary in Jerusalem. It's just a wonderful poem. One other point, and that is that the, that the writing, the script of this, the way it's laid out, uh, three phrases and two phrases, three phrases
0: and two phrases, it's completely unique in terms of the Bible. So it's the one of only two poems that we find in the Torah. The second is really at the end of the Torah in Deuteronomy and the Parsha known as Ha'azinu, Uh, This poem, which you've so wonderfully introduced, does cause some questions to be raised about the spiritual nature of it. So let me call your attention to uh, verse two and forward. It says, uh, and I'll read it in English for our listeners. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my deliverance. This is my God, and I will enshrine him. This is my Father, and I will exalt him. And that seems very much in keeping with the Exodus experience that the Jews are celebrating as they've crossed the Red Sea. But then in verse 3, it takes a um, detour, (laughs) and it introduces this notion, again, let me read it for the listeners, The Lord, the warrior, the Lord is his name. Uh, You might want to speak about which Hebrew term is used there. And then it says, verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he has cast into the sea. And the pick of his officers are drowned in the sea of reeds. The deeps covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O God, glorious in power, your right hand, O God, shatters the foe. So verse 2 reminds us that this is God the Deliverer, who has brought the people out of Egypt, and then suddenly the poem veers into this discussion of, well, what shall we identify? Uh, A vengeful God who wants to take out his anger at the Egyptians for not letting the Israelites go sooner. Uh, how do you teach this section? Yes. Well, thank you very much for that, for
1: that wonderful introduction to that. Um, I, I teach it this way, and, and this may be unique to me, but I, I call um, the Exodus the great demonstration project of God. Let me briefly tell you what I believe to be the story of the entirety of the Bible. God wanted a partnership with humanity and set up and Eve in the garden. You may have heard didn't go so well. It was in all the papers. Then God has another select family, lets, lets history go for 10 generations. Um, things, again, don't go so well. People create Hamas, and in other words, violence. Selects the family of Noah, says, I'm going to start over again. That also doesn't go so terribly well. So God selects one particular family, the family of Abraham, and says, when you do what I command you to do, uh, I will reward you when you when you sin when you transgress. I will punish you. everybody will see that, and they will come to me so again, God is looking for a partnership with humanity. Here God takes that very family which was promised in Genesis fifteen to go into enslavement okay? to to go and to suffer. In, in terms of being able to say, you know what it's like to be a slave. You know what it's like to suffer. But 430 years later comes out of enslavement. This is the story of the exodus from the enslavement. And and Pharaoh, why is it a demonstration project? Because Pharaoh thinks that he is God. And the world thinks that Pharaoh was God. And you, let me say, you maybe you stopped a few verses short. So, so let me continue on where it says, uh, the foe said, the foe said, I will, this is, by the way, is uh, verse 9. The foe said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will bear my sword, my hand shall subdue them. Okay, so so the earthly person who thinks that he's God is fighting in a military way. And that's sort of the description that you Uh, we're quoting, which which is the previous verses. But let me read the subsequent verses. You made your wind blow. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the majestic waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the celestials? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, working wonders? So here the earthly king, who considers himself to be God, wages war in a physical way, and what does God do in his demonstration project? Totally upends uh, that that King shows who is ruler in all of the world. And how does he do it? Because God controls nature. God is the creator of the world. Uh, later on, it will say that the nations have taken notes. Uh, in your love, you led the people you redeemed. In your strength, you guide them to your holy abode. The so this is here. verse 13 forward. Right. The people's here and they tremble. Agony grips the dwellers in Philistia. Now the clans of Edom are dismayed. The tribes of Moab. Trembling grips them. So the demonstration project works. Everyone sees that there is one God. And how does that God work? That God works through nature. I I take... Uh, I, I don't think that it's that it's wreaking vengeance upon it at all. It's showing to the nations that there is a God of the whole world, and they should all serve that God. And uh, Israel is the demonstration project.
0: So it's, um, well, it's an interesting hypothesis um, that God has offered to us in the Torah has a need to show people God's power as a means of bringing them to Him. Uh, the Israelites are redeemed from Egypt by God's power. Yes. Um, and one could argue with your hypothesis. Uh, foremost in our mind that, of course, um, the plagues are a statement of God's power to show Pharaoh that Pharaoh is not the only God in the universe. In fact, is a, uh, um, a secondary or tertiary God. And that, in fact, perhaps the text is trying to tell us that Pharaoh needs to recognize he is human and not divine. Um, when you teach this, why is it necessary for God to appear to be so violent in demonstrating uh, God's unique presence in the universe? So in the second century in the Jewish world, there was this debate between the best known rabbi
1: at the time, named Akiba, and Rabbi Ishmael. And, and Rabbi Ishmael's school said, Torah is is Bede Adan in Hebrew, which means the Torah speaks in human terms. Also, God acts in human terms in ways that human beings will comprehend. So there is this culture. Why does God command sacrifices? From Maimonides in the 12th century on and others uh, said that God demonstrated to the people God's power, uh, God's presence in their lives through the cultural context of, of the surrounding cultures. Also, there's a theory that God used the myths of the surrounding cultures uh, in the Torah, in order for people uh to recognize the stories and to to um uh adhere to the stories to think that the stories are are uh important in their lives, but then changes them changes those stories away from multiple gods, polytheism to the one God and a and a righteous god um a, a god of justice. Uh, but using contexts that the people understand. And I would say the same thing. I am a believer that that human beings under divine uh, influence uh, wrote the Torah and that it is divinely, uh, it, it, its origin is not word for word divine, but it is spiritually uh, uh, connected with, in other words, it is inspired. And uh, whether you take that point of view or the point of view that it was all revealed at Sinai, it seems to me to make sense that God would speak in terms that human beings at the time comprehend, with the ultimate goal being that God will establish justice out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of God from Jerusalem, as the prophets say, uh, in order to establish God's kingdom for all of humanity, uh, not just one people.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to pursue this train of thought for just a little bit. In the middle of this poem is a uh, set of Hebrew verses which have become uh, essential to Jewish liturgy. Uh, And we find them in verse 11. Um, In the Hebrew... It sounds uh, this way: Mi Ne Darba Kodesh, uh, Nora Who is like you, O God, among the celestials? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, working wonders. So is it your contention that that is the transitional moment in this poem? Yes. in which we are not uh, uh, acknowledging or we are not elevating God as a destroyer of the Egyptians, but rather the poem acknowledges that this God through this uh, miraculous nature is simply continuing the ongoing nature of creation that's expressed in the first Uh, Chapter of the Torah, um, who does wonders, uh, awesome in splendor, Um, working wonders. The first wonders that the Torah speaks about are creation. Yes, exactly right. Or if you take
1: the out of the whirlwind speeches in the Book of Job, beginning in chapter thirty-eight and continuing for several chapters. So, so there you have that human beings just don't comprehend. Job is right; he has been un. Unfairly punished uh, as a as a little experiment between God and this uh, a- angelic being, uh, the uh, the, oppre- the um, a- oppositional angel um, known as Satan, known as Satan, right? So, so, uh, what do we have here? We have a demonstration. I mean, one of the reasons that I think, for instance, that the that that the Torah reflects the culture of the people among whom it is written and it's written over time is this whole notion of who is, who is like you among the gods that are worshiped. So, so there are multiple theologies apparent in the, in the Bible. And here you have what's called, um, uh, by some, a, um, um, uh, a, 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 a or monolatry. Yeah. Say that again. Monolatry. Monolatry. I mean, Very good. Okay. Right. <laughs> so you have a supreme God and a pantheon around him, but God is in rule, whereas in the second part of Isaiah and in Jeremiah, you have, in contrast, uh, a, an absolutely a monotheistic theology. So, so in these theologies, mixed together in, in one book known as the Torah, maybe somewhere around the 6th or 5th century BCE when it all came together. Uh, what do you have? You have the story of this God who cares about a people because he cares about all peoples. Okay. And, and are the words absolutely consistent? No, I don't think so. I do think they, in part, they're culturally determined, but there is a larger lesson here of a God who is a righteous God. And we, you know, what they considered to be righteous in their terms, uh, 2,500 years ago may not would be what we see as righteous today. Uh, Exodus chapter 21, which is coming up, uh, you know, uh we would not look upon indentured servitude uh with, with a favorable eye, but they did in the Bible because uh, it's better than them starving to death, that you could sell yourself to someone for six years rather than starve to death on land uh, that you'd already sold so cultural context and history do matter to comprehend what the Torah is saying to us
0: so then let's look at another cultural context, and that's the end of the Shiratayam, or perhaps you don't even think it's associated with Shiratayam, and that's verse 30 of chapter 15. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her in dance with timbrels, and Miriam chanted for them, Shiru ki ga'a go'a sus verachov bayam. Sing to the Lord, for God has triumphed gloriously. Horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. So we start off with this lovely picture of uh, Miriam and the women. And you might want to comment on why she's known as a prophetess there, where we haven't had any introduction previously to that aspect of her existence. Um, And the women are dancing, and you might think that they're dancing to uh, celebrate the great glory of God. And then this verse ends by saying, because God has killed everybody, we are dancing joyously, right? Uh, He has triumphed gloriously, and the horse and drivers were killed. There's no uh, disclaimer at the end of this book that says no animals were hurt during the making of this book. (laughs) Uh, So... How do you understand what seems to be going back to the beginning of the the poem and this introduction of Miriam?
1: I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you asked this question. So there are two big points to be made. Uh, One is the role of women. Uh, A scholar, a Bible scholar by the name of Carol Myers, who teaches or taught, she's now retired at Duke University, um, talks about uh, drum, dance and song that the places where drum, dance, and song are present were likely written by women. They are the hallmark of a woman's appearance. Uh, and that they, in fact, this may be a sign that a woman or Miriam wrote the entirety of this song that should be attributed uh, to her, that they come out and rejoice. Now you ask the question of, of why rejoice over the death of your enemies? As you know, Rabbi, uh, there is a midrash from some hundreds of years later a uh, very well-known midrash in the Jewish world, that uh, as the children take up this song, as the children of Israel take up this song, uh, God says, my creatures are drowning and you are rejoicing. And he says it in a disapproving manner, which is to say, all of God's creatures are appreciated by God. And even when they do things contrary to God's will, they are appreciated as the image of God and his life itself. And therefore we are not supposed to triumph uh, and sing joyfully over the, over, their, um, uh, demise. over their demise. And in the Seder that we will have this coming week, which when people are hearing it, it'll be in the past. Okay, Since the 12th century, there's been this custom of reducing uh, the amount of wine that we have in our cups by a drop for each one of the plagues to demonstrate the fact that our joy should be diminished by the suffering of others, no matter whether they are our persecutors or our
0: friends. Okay, so if we if we take Carol Myers' uh, hypothesis that this section was written by women, the women appear to be quite uh, attuned to this uh, aggressive nature of the deity. Um, and it doesn't answer the question of why the text seems to need to seal the poem, because from then on, the poem moves, the poem ends, and we move on to a different narrative. So the poem is sealed by Miriam and the women dancing, which would have been all fine and fit with Carol uh, Meyer's hypothesis. Uh, but then why end with this uh, more aggressive nature? Yeah, so it's a quotation from
1: the first, from the very beginning of the song, and I think that that shows ownership. It says, "If in quoting Miriam, who is now called a prophetess, meaning that she speaks directly with God, okay, who is now called a prophetess, uh, when when she dances, what happens? That they quote the actual title, so to speak, of the poem. of the song, okay. and it's showing
0: ownership by Miriam of the entirety of the song." Lovely. So you suggest that Miriam is called a prophetess because she speaks directly to God. Do we have any examples in um, the journey of the Israelites where Miriam is identified as speaking to God other than the famous episode in Numbers, the book of Numbers, where it appears that God hears she and Aaron off to stage left, uh, upset with Moses, and it's not clear that she's speaking directly to God. Um, I've always thought of it as truly a stage whisper that God overhears. But um, do we have an example of somewhere she speaks directly to God or God speaks directly to her? This is
1: more evident, it seems to me, in the Midrash. But you do have where where uh, their mother uh, sends Miriam to go watch out over bro, uh, brother Moses, baby Moses in the basket when she is found by uh, Pharaoh's daughter. So in that role, she is saving the savior, uh, which I suppose, in a certain sense, in parallel to Christianity, maybe makes her look a little bit like John the Baptist. I just made that up, uh, so you know, take it for what it's worth. So, but 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 she does have a role, and then midrashically, even more importantly, when Miriam dies, uh, the immediate next story. Uh, is that the children of Israel are suffering for lack of water, they're suffering of thirst, and they appeal to God. And out of this, the Midrash develops this idea among the rabbis that there was Miriam's well. And Miriam's well, which is now a a recent custom, also represented on the Seder table at the the Passover meal, Miriam's well in the Midrash is this well that accompanies them for the 40 years through the wilderness accredited to Miriam's a connection to God and her role, her largely quiet role in terms of reporting of Torah, but her role uh, in the Exodus and in the leadership of the people. So, whereas Aaron is given a more explicit role, the rabbis do recognize the fact that Miriam had a role, and they make it a critical role in terms of giving giving the people the the, the water that they need to survive the desert.
0: We don't have enough time to really enter into this question of why the rabbis felt the need to highlight Miriam's role, uh, and why the rabbis, through the Midrashic process, the homiletical exposition of the text, felt the need to elevate women's role while the text itself certainly couldn't be Uh, perceived to place women in great uh, leadership positions or to acknowledge the women as central actors in the narrative. But it's a good place for us to think about the fact that um, Passover is a holiday that's not celebrated and observed in the synagogue usually. It's a uh, home-based observance with the Seder the first night and for traditional Jews living outside of Israel, Seder on the second night. And there may be some reason, given that this is a festival that's so much part of the home that the rabbis felt women needed to be uh, seen in a very different light during this festival. Hmm. But be that as it may, I want to thank Rabbi Mark Levin for sharing his insights with us regarding Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea, which is read in Jewish congregations on the seventh day of Passover. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of our This Morning Show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website wishing you shalom and a good day.